Questions like how's your social life or did you spend time with family this weekend aren't typically asked during an annual checkup at the doctor's office. Most physicians tailor their questions to how a patient is physically feeling, not the status of their social calendar. But our guest this week focuses on how factors like friendship and compassion can lead to a healthier life. Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. Dr. Kelly Harding is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Her new book is The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. It focuses on the science of human connection rather than traditional biological health. Dr. Harding, thanks so much for being here. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan. So you make clear that the one thing this book does not do is offer a 10-step fitness plan or a (laughs) two-week diet. But don't we all need those things? Right. So the idea with this is that so much of our health, when we think about health, has to do with, you know, sort of these quick schemes to get healthier. They're very much focused on the body and absolutely you know, diet, exercise, all of that's important. Seeing a doctor is definitely important. The The gist of the book is that, and this is what I feel incredibly passionate about, is understanding that that's just a component of our health. It's not the big picture of our health. At least a couple of times in the book, you say, I would never have imagined when I entered medicine that there was a lot that you didn't know going in that you learned later on, huh? Absolutely. So, You know, I think like many people coming to medical school, my goal was to try to help people with their health. And medical school is a wonderful experience. What I didn't appreciate, and I think it has to do with part of the urgency of this book, is that we need to think about health beyond the body. And absolutely, tending to our body is important and all of those things, but health is a much bigger picture. And it took me a while to learned that. It was actually quite a journey because like many medical students, I dove right in. I spent many, many hours locked away in cubicles studying, you know, then on the hospital wards and then many years in research labs. And what it took was um, sort of an unexpected story to bring me beyond that to see what what we're missing in medicine. And that's where it just felt so urgent that people know about this because what is most important to health isn't something you're necessarily going to learn in medical school. So what do rabbits have to do with it? (laughs) So um, (laughs) I'm laughing in part because I'm getting, uh, you know, I've not known that much about rabbits before this journey. And it's rabbits are becoming quite central in my life now. In fact, my son just asked if we could purchase a rabbit uh-huh. to go along with the book, but um, I don't think so. Uh, we have two guinea pigs at home, so we're plenty of plenty of rodents at home. So what rabbits have to do with this is, you know, we have sort of a textbook idea about how the body works. And during my Uh, training, I started to notice a mismatch between the patients I was seeing and the patients I was reading about in stories. And, you know, I think all people who work in the health profession know this, that someone can have the exact same diagnosis and one person goes on to, you know, live and do quite well with it and manage living with it and continue to thrive in many ways. And then other people don't. And sort of what is the difference that one person does well and the other person doesn't? And the flip side of that is also people who maybe don't have a diagnosis but are not 
doing well in their life. And there's nothing sort of medically that we can find on a lab test or, you know, on an x-ray or even a CAT scan. But it's one of those things, or MRI, that it's one of those things that they know they're not functioning. So all of this sort of led me on this journey from medical school through residency. I started internal medicine and then thought, well, maybe it has to do with sort of how our mental health affects the body and our functioning. And then from there, I actually ended up doing this really unique fellowship at Columbia uh, looking at unexplained symptoms. So, you know, people who have debilitating physical symptoms or sometimes debilitating anxieties about symptoms, but there's no sort of evidence that they have the illness. So from that, I learned through one of my mentors, Dr. Arthur Barsky, who's a uh, who's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard and just a lovely individual about this study. So this was a long warm-up to basically telling you about the rabbit study. So here's the gist of the rabbit study. In the 1970s, Dr. Robert Neerum, who is a basic scientist, was doing a really straightforward experiment looking at cholesterol levels and heart health. And at the time, we didn't really have a clear connection between sort of diet and things like heart attack and stroke. And so he had designed this study with sort of genetically identical rabbits, more or less, and fed them all the same high-fat diet. And when they went to go look at their results, something was quirky and off. And what they realized is that one of the groups didn't seem to have all the negative health effects that the other groups did. So they thought initially there was something wrong with their protocol. They, It's funny to hear him describe it. Um, they sort of looked around, like, what had they missed? And then finally they looked at themselves, and they realized that one of the postdocs that was working in the lab was an unusually kind and caring individual. And she had not just been giving the rabbits kibble, but she'd actually been holding them, petting them, talking to them. She was basically giving them love and kindness and connection. So all of this sort of flipped their study on the head, and they decided that even though they weren't behavioral scientists, that they couldn't ignore this finding. So they replicated it with very tight conditions, essentially, and showed that, in fact, kindness did make a big difference when it came to health outcomes, even when they were the rabbits were getting a very poor diet. Now, that ended up being published in Science, a very prestigious journal, and then it went the way of many medical studies, sort of just was out there and never really caught on. But it was something that Arthur had mentioned to me, and I found it so intriguing because basically the idea of it is that our social environment is somehow getting under our skin, and it's happening in ways that we don't necessarily appreciate. And so I was so curious to learn more. I ended up sort of crossing the street at Columbia, going to the School of Public Health, and I learned all about decades of science and research that's been done looking at how our social world impacts our physiology. And it's mind-boggling because it turns out that actually, you know, sort of our biology, uh, well, first of all, medical care probably only counts for 10, 20% of our overall health status. Our genes do count for something, but it turns out those are much more malleable than I ever imagined when I started in medicine. And they're guess what, affected by the social environment. So it turns out our social environment is humongous. And how do you break that down? That was sort of my quest in the rabbit effect. And the more I learned, the more I realized this was something that people within the hospital didn't necessarily understand. Public health was sort of a separate field, and I needed some way to bring that together and then really take it outside of the medical center because this is something 
that implies, and all the research shows, that health is happening in our communities. It's happening in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, you know, in our places of worship. It's happening in our nations. And it's something that we need to change the conversation about health. Health is much more than individual biology. It's our connection to each other. Yeah, let's break some of this down. How does having a healthy work environment impact our health? Yes. Okay. So there are these studies that were done called the Whitehall studies that I found so intriguing. They they basically showed it was an artifact of the study. They it was done in Britain decades ago, and they studied uh, essentially office workers over decades. And what they discovered is that somebody's they were looking at um, heart health again. And, you know, the hypothesis was sort of that the boss in the corner office with all the stress would be the first to, you know, drop dead. And what they discovered studying people over time was that, in fact, health outcomes very closely correlated with the person's employment grade. At first, this was actually just an incidental finding, as many exciting discoveries are. They had, um, just as a matter of housekeeping, recorded what, uh, what level the the people were in their jobs. And it's fascinating because then they replicated it again, this time looking at the initial study was just in men, and then they opened it up to office workers. And they found that actually having a job where you have more autonomy over your day-to-day, where you feel in control, where you have positive relationships, actually improved health outcomes, which, you know, I think as a doctor, that is nothing I ever imagined would make a difference. And the reality is it probably makes a bigger difference to your health that you have a manager that you like and feel as a partner than uh, than probably who your doctor you see is, um, it, which is so, it, again, it just flips sort of our understanding of health on its head. Yeah, you say in the book, going after the job with the higher salary isn't always the best thing for someone. Yes, this gets into the big story. And so this is... This is a very big story, and it affects every aspect of our life. And so absolutely, our workplaces, because that's where we spend the majority of our time, is a is a big one. Um, and it also gets it sort of income. It turns out, you know, if you look at – there's these sort of fascinating studies that – Above a certain threshold of income, it doesn't actually boost your happiness and well-being that much. Um, sure, a Porsche is nice, but you know it doesn't really affect your overall happiness. When they look at sort of like these bigger scales, and this is mostly from the field of economics where this is done, and uh, and it turns out that probably the far greater payout is having a couple things. One, a workplace that you are treated with dignity and that you feel part of the team. The other thing is that is not always correlated with work, but something that's important for people to think about in their lives is how passionate they are about the things that they do. And this is where the science gets like really cool because it turns out that having things like passion and you know, a drive to do something actually seems to be beneficial for your health. And this happens in part through sort of these molecular changes at the telomere level and epigenetic changes. But isn't that cool? Because it's sort of this like mysterious link between the mind, body, and our social world that is awesome. (laughs) Fairness in the workplace is also critically important. You say in the book that a wage gap is also a health gap. Yeah. So 
this was really eye-opening to me. You know, when we think about sort of equity, it across the board, whether it's in workplaces or if it's in our communities, when you look at population data, equity is definitely having a health impact on different groups. And, you know, whether that be people of color, whether it be women, any any sort of sense of discrimination seems to impact our biology negatively. And so there have been some really, and the data on this, particularly with the wage gap, and, you know, I think for a lot of women in particular, this is of interest, um, that it, it seems as though that maybe some of the anxiety and depression that we've always associated with being female may actually in part have to do with some gender inequality that people are experiencing. And um, they've done these really interesting, there's one particular study that was done at Columbia that was uh, particularly interesting, sort of like when you equalize for the wage gap, the excessive diagnoses of anxiety and depression go away, which is curious what that's all about. Um, And it makes you wonder, you know, how much of what we're seeing is because, is it sort of inside out versus outside in when it comes to diagnoses, particularly mental health diagnoses, which is my field and uh, particularly of interest. Speaking of mental health, your book talks about studies that show people living with severe mental illness receive lower quality medical care and are at risk of dying 28 and a half years earlier on average than people without these diagnoses. It is beyond statistically significant. There's something going on. And the question is, what is it? So part of it Maybe And the answer is not entirely clear, but part of it may be that there may be something going on that we're not fully understanding in terms of common pathways that are causing both the mental symptoms and physical problems. You know, one sort of key suspect in all this is inflammation. So maybe there's some correlate there. And then the other piece of this that I have seen firsthand time and time again, even in wonderful places to get care, is that people with mental illness face stigma a lot of times. And, you know, I think doctors are extremely well-intentioned. It can be very tricky diagnostically once somebody has a label of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder that people think that it might be, or depression, that they may think that the symptoms that they're describing are somehow related more to their mental state than something physically going on. So, um because of that, and also because of the way we do mental health care in this country, it becomes a sort of two-tiered system. So if somebody ends up in care for a mental illness, they may not necessarily be getting the full range of um, consideration about what else might be causing this. So, you know, there, there are lots of clues, but it can be very difficult, and particularly in a very busy emergency room setting, to tease that apart sometimes. And the challenge is, you know, once somebody's admitted to a hospital, especially in mental health, a lot of times it's a freestanding hospital that's sort of separate from the rest of medical care. So if somebody needs care, it's harder to get it. It, it can be done, and absolutely consultations happen, and, you know, attentive doctors figure out what's going on is not necessarily primarily a mental illness, but it can be challenging. So there's sort of a variety of reasons that people with mental health don't do as well. And, you know, that also gets at prevention. And I think that's part of the gist of this is that wouldn't it be wonderful if we could, as 
a society and as our communities and our neighborhoods sort of think more about mental health early and support people early so that they don't have to go down these long roads sometimes. So, you know, there's sort of there's the care downstream once somebody's ill, but there's also the care upstream that we have to be focusing on. And, you know, that starts early. It starts in the beginning of life. And it also means having family-friendly policies so that people can, you know, be able to give the care that they need early in life. Talk to us about the importance of touch in our lives. You share a story in the book, a powerful story, about the miraculous recovery of a stillborn baby. Oh, that story is... It is miraculous. That's a good description of it. Um, And heartbreaking, too, in many respects, because I think, you know, obviously touch isn't going to save every stillborn baby in this particular case. um, And this was a woman named Kate Ogg, who was in Australia, who um, whose baby, she was pregnant with twins and twins often arrive early. And in this case, they arrived extremely early. And she was told that one of the twins didn't make it. And, you know, as is is often the case in medicine, it was sort of this feeling that the baby was deceased and she needed to accept it. And they they sort of granted her with her persistence some time to hold the baby. And with time, they realized that, in fact, the baby was moving. And there was something about that touch that, you know, made the spark stronger that was there. Um, You know, medicine has not, I love my field, by the way, I just want to say that up front. And that's part of this book comes from my love of the field. And I think the people who go into medicine are so well-intentioned. And I think, you know, a lot of times I, I think I see this with the students I work with, with, as they go down the road, that a lot of people get burned out in medicine. And part of it, I think, is because we're not addressing some of the social things that happen. Um, you know, medicine, we we grab onto theories, and sometimes we don't let go for a long time. And so one of them that we've had to sort of evaluate is that sort of there's definitely value in sterile environments. But, you know, sometimes that's at the detriment of things like, you know, sort of the human things that make us human. And so you know, the sort of famous stories with those have to do with um, orphanages, um, at first in Austria and then Romania, that it was this idea where kids were separated from everyone because, you know, it seemed like all the kids were dying in the orphanages and they didn't know why. And they thought it was because of germ theory that it was this idea that they were spreading germs. And in fact, when you looked at kids that were, you know, even if they were with their moms in prison, they fared far, far better than the kids that were sort of isolated, which goes against our sort of standard. Yeah, theory. even though they could have been exposed to disease Countless and such. diseases, mm-hmm. essentially, right. And so, sorry, this is a somewhat long-winded answer taking you on a journey through Europe. But, um, but the idea is basically that, you know, also we did this in hospitals for a long time where we would sort of isolate particularly newborns you know away from everything because we're so scared of an infection and I'm sure absolutely infections are something to pay a lot of attention to and um, absolutely wash your hands you know those kinds of things but the other piece of it is that touch is so critical particularly for newborns and so there and I talk about it in the book but there are all these amazing studies sort of showing that sometimes in conditions where there is touch involved, the outcomes are far better. And I mean, it just makes, it's one of those things where it makes so much common sense. You know, we all know we feel better when we get a supportive squeeze or a hug from somebody. And, you know, 
it, now there's data to basically show that, in fact, that helps ward, you know, boost our immune system. It seems to ward off colds and flus. I mean, absolutely still get your flu shot, but that's a nice thing to, to know that, um, that actually touch seems to boost support. And so particularly in the realm of newborn care, a lot has changed with the understanding that, you know, this idea that skin on skin makes a difference. And then, of course, in the book, I also talk about the uh, mama rats licking their babies, Mm -hmm. which are these phenomenal set of studies basically showing that love is like turning on genes in a way that we could have never have imagined. And again, yet another incidental finding essentially that is really awesome. And, you know, I think in many ways, very applicable to our day-to-day lives, how we interact with our kids. You also say that touch isn't the only way we establish intimate bonds, that simply paying attention to loved ones (sighs) matters. Yes. And this is, I feel like, the challenge of our age, right? So, oh my goodness. So my son... My oldest son, Max, was born around the time that the iPhone came out. In fact, I remember my husband, that's like sort of his first photos were with an iPhone, uh, taken with an iPhone. And I think we are basically in the middle of this experiment where we're all looking at our phones and not necessarily at the people around us. And connection, eye contact, you know, even here in the studio, seeing your eyes makes a huge difference to being able to connect with somebody else. And we've got to pay attention to that because it turns out our attention, our time and our attention are probably our two greatest gifts that we can give to the people we love around us and our communities as well. So turn off the cell phone at the dinner table. So we have started doing that in our own family, and it's hard, you know, because I feel like we live in this sort of 24-7 culture where you're expected to be reached all the time. And, you know, there are people like Ariana Huffington who's really making a push to try to, you know, put our phones to bed at night and uh, really give ourselves more, you know, human time as opposed to sort of virtual time. And, you know, I love my phone, too. The idea is that, you know, we can we need to have a healthy relationship and set some boundaries like most relationships. It's all about sort of boundaries. So, Some people say that they prefer to be alone, that they would rather just be sitting on the couch on a Friday night watching a movie by themselves. Yeah. But there are actually health implications to that, right? Oh, my gosh. So. Absolutely. So the first probably big distinction that's important to note is, you know, there's a difference between feeling alone and lonely. Um, And, you know, we all feel lonely from time to time. So the thing we're trying to avoid is sort of chronic loneliness, because that's where the health studies are done. And it turns out, you know, there's some debate of as to what the percentage exactly is, but it looks as though a lot of us are experiencing chronic loneliness, and it does have big health health implications. So A piece of this is that, you know, it's both the quality and the quantity of friends that you have. Um, And so, you know, you can have a lot of connections on Facebook, but if you're not really having some deep, meaningful connections along with that, it's not as as meaningful or seemingly giving you as big a boost. Um, And then the flip side of that is people who are sort of the life of the party, but they still... In fact, Elvis apparently had some quote where he described feeling alone in a crowded room. And I always think of that because, you know, there are people who aren't sort of what we were talking about before. They're not really connecting, even though there's somebody sitting right across from them. So yes, in fact, there's increasing number of studies that show that 
chronic loneliness is worse for our health, even a degree of magnitude more than we were aware than, you know, sort of known, well-established risk factors like obesity, even smoking, um, heavy alcohol use, high blood pressure. I mean, the list sort of goes on and on. And who would have guessed? I mean, your doctor probably asks you, you know, about how many cigarettes you smoke, how many drinks you have on the weekend, but they probably aren't asking you, like, how many times you go to brunch this month or, you know, or out to dinner on Friday night. Yeah, that's so true. I can't remember ever a time where my doctor asked me a question like that during my annual physical. Right, right. So, and also the other part of that is it's hard to fit into a, you know, a 15, 20-minute physical or visit. So, you know, part of it is we have to adjust in the medical field sort of how we're doing things. And part of it is we have to rethink what health is for ourselves. Um, but it makes so much sense. Um, you know, I think the other piece of that, the sitting home on the couch watching Netflix, we all love it um, mm-hmm. and do it from time to time. And it's sort of depending on your personality, it can sort of be nice to have a restorative quiet night. But don't do it all but the time. But don't do it all the time. And the other thing is to be mindful because there's this thing called the loneliness loop that's uh, you know pretty well documented that when you start turning stuff down, it sort of gets into a bit of a spiral. So just make sure you say yes periodically to stuff. And, um, and you know, part of that is, and this is another thing, because health is in all different aspects of our lives. You know, it can be saying yes to something that's a little outside of your comfort zone is actually awesome. You know, it gets you out there. You're likely to meet new people. And it's also fun, particularly if you're learning something. I should point out that many of the chapters in your book end with guidance. Here's some things to think about for your own lives to help improve your life, to make those decisions that you might not be making otherwise. Absolutely. So I I call them, I think, toolkits. And it's just sort of brainstorming ideas to think about ways to incorporate more of of this concept of connection, whether it be in your family life or, you know, in your workplaces or schools or communities to get yourself out there. And I mean, it, the nice thing is this is really fun. It's like way more fun than sort of just like eating a bunch of salad somewhere <laughs> or, you know, holding a plank for hours and hours. Well, those things are good for you and you should certainly do them. I think it's it's more about sort of who are you doing them with is the idea. This is something else in the book that I think some people might be surprised by, and that is there is a correlation between someone's health and their level of education. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So this is so shocking to me as a physician, but it turns out, you know, education has... In fact, there's a statistic that is often quoted that, you know, education probably saves eight lives for every one life saved by biomedicine. Wow. Because we invest a lot in biomedicine, which is important, but we don't invest so much in education. Um, And we certainly don't necessarily think of the health protective effects of education. And what's weird about it is it's not just education itself, sort of like learning how to navigate the system, but there actually seems to be some sort of primary effect of the education. And what's awesome about that, too, is that education isn't just something we do when we're little. It's something we do our entire lives. And there is countless opportunities. And I think, you know, a a big piece of that is to 
take your education seriously and find things you love and show up to them and talk to the other people that are there, engage. And, you know, it's sort of this choice to do that. And I think, you know, people often will be like, oh, I got too much work to do, too many emails to answer. But like really like when it comes down to it, those are some of not only are they the most meaningful things in life, but they also are um, good for our health, which is cool. I mean, it's nice to know that you can go to the gym and go to a class after work and they're both good for you. Classes also don't have to be expensive. Um, I I remember, and I think I spoke about in the book, you know, I took a seminar that was free that I actually even just this morning was emailing the instructor from. And it's It's one of those things that if you look for it, it's all around you. We're just about out of time. Are there any other takeaways you want to leave us with? Well, I think the the big one and the one I feel so passionate about is just realize that health is so much beyond those occasional doctor's visits. It's really in the moment to moment of our daily lives that health is being built for ourselves and those we love around us. And what's really amazing is if that we can, if we can all attend to this, there's no reason we can't do a lot better. You know, what's something we didn't touch on, but you know, we spend a fortune on medical care in this country. And, you know, it's disappointing because we don't have the health outcomes that we would like compared to other wealthy nations. And I think the reason and what we're really missing in medicine and I think also in this country is that we're not really taking care of one another in the way that we can. And, you know, there are many, many different ways to do that. But what's cool is every single person who's listening to this program has within their sphere of influence people they can reach out to, people that they can be a little kinder to, you know, let more stuff go. Um, And I think that's that's the thing. If we all feel connected to one another, we're going to be able to brave the rough times much easier. And I mean, there's some rough times, so. The book is The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. Dr. Kelly Harding, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you to all the listeners and those who support the station as well. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. And thank you so much for listening.